Turn with me in uh, your copy of God's Word to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2 tonight, verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. If you need uh, help finding 2 Thessalonians, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians are found in the New Testament, uh, right after Colossians and uh, right before the first letter to Timothy. So... um, as Brian mentioned, um, just uh, two weeks ago, I actually uh, successfully defended my doctoral dissertation here at, um, in Louisville at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I defended it uh, not this past week, but the week before, and then uh, just on Thursday, I made the uh, necessary uh, re- corrections or um, uh, edits that they wanted me to make and was able to turn in the final draft. So um I wanted to take a moment to begin tonight just to express my gratitude and appreciation to you as my church family for that. Um, It's been a very long process for me. Uh, I've told some of you that it's been uh, 11 years since I first felt like this is something that God wanted me to pursue. Um, And it's been actually, by the time I graduate, it'll actually be almost six years uh, that I've been here in Louisville pursuing it. So... Um, in the preface that you write to, in, your, uh, in your dissertation, you're allowed to express your thankfulness for those who have helped you along the way. And uh, I just wanted to read you uh, part of mine. It's going to be the top of the second page of the preface. I just write simply, I'm thankful for my church family, Fisherville Baptist Church. They've been an incredible community for my family. And um, I will just uh, stop there and uh, just say that that doesn't begin to say it all. Uh, I'm so thankful for the way that you guys have taken us in and uh, embraced us as part of part of your family. And uh, no matter what, you know, everybody's asking me, "Well, what, what are we going to do now? Are you going to be hanging uh, hanging around here? Are you going to be moving on?" Um, I don't know all that the answers to all those questions, but I can tell you one thing: um, the Fisherville Church family is something that, no matter what happens, uh, is something that we're going to take with us, no matter where uh, God calls us to next or where He calls us to. Uh, or what he calls us to do. So uh, I wanted to uh, just take a moment to express my appreciation for uh, to this church for that. Um, this week also, for more than one reason, kind of gave me a chance to reflect on uh, the very first uh, class that I had uh, at Southern as a part of my PhD. Uh, it was a seminar in uh, First Peter. So I uh, showed up uh, there to class, and I was so excited to show off all my knowledge as one of the new PhD students uh, on campus, and was very excited for all the things that I was going to learn and all the insight that I would be able to give others. And um, we uh, started class, and uh, the first thing that we talked about in my very first seminar uh, in the PhD uh, uh, program here at, uh, at there at Southern was. Uh, uh, the use of independent uh, imperatival participles in the epistle to First Peter, okay? And so we were having this conversation in our class, and uh, some of the students were very uh, impassioned about uh, Peter having these uh, independent imperatival participles in his letter. Um, the professor and some other students were like, well, just wait a minute. The, nobody even knows what that is outside of New Testament sc- uh, studies. There's no independent imperatival participles anywhere else besides what these guys in the New Testament uh, say they see in the New Testament. And this whole time they're discussing independent imperatival participles. I'm sitting there scared to death thinking, what in the world is an imp- independent imperatival participle? So I did what uh, any good PhD student would do. I, uh, first of all, I kept my mouth shut, right? I didn't draw any attention to myself. Second thing I did was I kind of adjusted my laptop just a little bit so the guy beside me couldn't see what I was doing. I pretended to type a note, but what I was really doing was bringing up Google and typing in, what is an (laughs) independent imperatival participle? And I found it's a rare use of a a participle as an imperative that is grammatically independent of the governing verb in the sentence. And so um, I was like, okay, so I straightened out my laptop and I checked the guy beside me to see if he was actually looking up the same thing, and he wasn't, but that was okay. And about that time, the professor goes, well, we've discussed this enough. Let's move on to discuss the perinesis in First Peter. <laughs> what is perinesis? 
it's uh, for me, and I hear this is actually quite normal, the PhD was an uh, experience where I just felt like I was in over my head from the moment I start all the way until they said, Casey, you're going to be uh, graduating this December. So um, uh, that feeling of being in over my head, actually, I uh, felt it again. Um, I decided to preach 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 for you tonight. Uh, because later on this month in prison ministry, I'm going to be preaching uh, out of Mark's gospel. Uh, this is the pre uh, prison ministry that we have here at Fisherville, where a group of us guys go and preach to the inmates up in Rotor Correctional Complex. So I'm preaching a passage out of the middle of Mark chapter 13, and it's very much related to what we're going to look at tonight. So I thought, well, I'll go ahead, and since I'm preaching that later on this month, I'll go ahead and study this passage uh, and, and have a lot of good groundwork on that sermon. So when I started my study in preparation for tonight, uh, it seemed like the first words out of every commentary or thing that I was looking at said, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 is the most difficult passage out of all of Paul's letters. And so here again, I feel like I'm in over my head. I had this perpetual feeling that I was in over my head for the last six years, and now uh, lo and behold, my first endeavor after I uh, submit my dissertation, uh, again, I am over my head. Um, but as I begin to examine uh, the passage that we're going to look at tonight, I did see, of course, yes, uh, it is a very difficult passage to understand and to interpret in, in a lot of ways. But in some respects, there's um, an underlying simplicity in it. You know, when we think of Paul's letters, uh, we also often think about uh, complex theological arguments, right? Uh, he's making these deep points, uh, and a lot of times it's, it takes a lot of effort to actually understand what's going on, right? But as I began to read this passage, it began to dawn on me, what Paul is talking about here is actually not a, this in-depth exposition of theology, it's actually a story, right? Paul's telling these Thessalonians a, a story, a grand old story, like we heard about some this morning, uh, about what God has done, what has happened in God's creation, and what God has done to fix it, and how God is going to uh, wrap it all up for His glory in the end. So, I decided one of the simplest ways that we could actually study this passage uh, would be to study four characters in this passage. Okay, four characters in this larger overarching story that we're going to encounter tonight in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, the four characters are, first of all, the Thessalonians themselves. The second character we're going to discover is this man of lawlessness. He sounds dangerous. He is. Third thing we're going to, uh, character we're going to discuss is those who have been deceived. And the final character we're going to look at is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the hero of this story, as he is all stories uh, in God's Word. So let's read our passage tonight. Again, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read from the ESV. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring nothing to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." 
So um, as I said, we're going to look at uh, four characters uh, in this passage tonight that I believe are the four main characters of the story that Paul is actually trying to clue us in on here. And uh, we're going to look at three things about all four of these characters. So first up is the, the Thessalonians themselves. Now, in order to truly understand the Thessalonians, we need to back up a little bit, okay? We need to look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, okay? So a couple things about the Thessalonians that we discover in chapter 1. First, we discover that the Thessalonians are growing immensely in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at a... Chapter 1, verse 3, which reads, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So their faith is growing abundantly, as is their love. Let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So Paul actually calls these people worthy of God's kingdom. Let's uh, back up just a little bit to chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith. So Paul actually, when he's going around to these churches that he's planting and that he is revisiting, he's actually bragging on the Thessalonians and saying, these guys are growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at an unbelievable rate, and God is really working among the Thessalonians. That's something we want to be said about us at Fisherville, right? Whenever we go somewhere, or whenever one of our pastors goes somewhere, we want our pastors to go places and say, let me brag about this church that I'm a part of because God is truly doing a work in, uh, among their midst and it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's something God is doing through these people. So this is something that we want to be, uh, we want to uh, mirror the Thessalonians in this. But the second thing that we learn that we might not want to uh, mirror as much is that they were also a suffering church. They were a suffering church. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 4 again. Uh, after that first part that I read, it says, uh, for uh, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Um, so they were suffering. We're not really sure how they were suffering, um, obviously through some kind of persecution and afflictions. We don't know the details, but uh, we do know that it was for the kingdom of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered uh, worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, okay? So the Thessalonians, not only are they growing in their faith, they are actually suffering because of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Paul provides, uh, but Paul actually, as you keep going in uh, chapter one, Paul actually provides the Thessalonians hope uh, there with the second coming of Christ. Let's start in uh, chapter one, uh, verse six, and we're gonna read through verse 10. Uh, these verses say, Since indeed God considers it uh, just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And so I think this is so incredible. What Paul actually does is he takes this, the sufferings of this church, right? And he doesn't focus on them and their suffering. Instead, what he does is he takes their sufferings and he plugs it into the larger story of what God is doing from creation to consummation, right? Uh, you know, the Thessalonians probably thought their suffering was rather insignificant in the world, right? You know, they probably thought that, you know, most people probably don't really care that we're uh, suffering like this. It probably isn't going to make much difference difference at the end of all things. But what Paul actually does is he say no. He says no. This is actually part of God's plan for what he is doing because <clears throat> the solution to your suffering, what's going to make uh, all things right is that when Christ comes back, he is going to do away with all your sufferings and he is going to set all things right. 
uh, before, uh, before him. He is going to judge those who are bringing your afflictions, and he is going to allow you to participate uh, in, pra- in uh, the praising of his glory. So, <clears throat> so um, as I was thinking about that, um, we learned about the Thessalonians and their suffering, um, one of the things that uh, it kind of made me, uh, made, dawned on me is that I don't think that we actually focus on the second coming enough uh, in our churches. Um, when we're bringing prayer requests before one another, very rarely do I ever hear the resolution of one of those requests being the second coming of Christ, right? We typically want God to remove whatever affliction is causing us pain. We want God to work in a situation in such a way that it will be resolved. Um, but very rarely do we ever actually do what Paul does here and says, and say, the solution to this affliction that I'm going through is the second coming of Christ. It is come, Lord Jesus, upon this earth right now and set all things right. Which is very odd because I think a lot of times we have very short-sighted solutions to our problems, don't we? We don't have the big picture solution that Paul begins to present us here. Sometimes I think that's because we get so uh, wrapped up in our affluency, right? We don't really want major uh, world-changing solutions to our problems. What we want is a return to the status quo, right? Well, Paul's solution to the second Thessal- uh, to the Thessalonians uh, problems isn't a return to the status quo. It is a renewed status quo. It is a uh, a new age dawning. So, uh, second thing that we're going to learn about the Thessalonians uh, from our passage, uh, actually this time, is uh, that the uh, Thessalonians were confused about the second coming. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So um, Paul identifies the second coming of our Lord uh, in three ways. He calls it the coming of Christ in verse 1. He calls it our being gathered to Christ in verse 1. And then in verse 2, uh, he calls it the, uh, the day of the Lord, which has Old Testament connotations of judgment, right? So for those who are suffering for the sake of Christ, it is going to be a gathering to Christ, uh, which is a joyous thing. But for those who are bringing that persecution on those, it is going to be a day of judgment for them, uh, like it is in the Old Testament when we read about the day of the Lord coming upon Israel and God is going to come uh, and upset the, the world order uh, that... Uh, that has opposed him. So, <clears throat> um, well, uh, we know from um, uh, Second Thessalonians chapter one, uh, we know that Paul, uh, the Thessalonians, are suffering, and Paul actually uses the second coming of the Lord. Uh, as the solution to these sufferings of the Thessalonians. Well, you can imagine how the Thessalonians are are feeling at this point. They are confused about the second uh, coming of the Lord. They actually think perhaps that Christ has already come back and we're still sitting here suffering, right? So apparently in their mind, uh, Christ is perhaps in uh, Jerusalem or some other faraway place and he is uh, reigning, he has established his rule upon the earth, uh, but his influence hasn't made it to them. Yeah, right? They're, even though Christ has all things under his control, that doesn't pertain to their exact situation. And so we can see how their confusion uh, about the second coming uh, would have been very uh, dis- uh, disrupting to them. Because in effect, what they have is a situation in which there is no hope. The grand solution uh, has already uh, come about. Christ has returned, but their suffering has not gone away. Third thing that we're going to see about the second Thessalonians is that Paul warns the Thessalonians against being deceived. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 2 again, which says, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. 
And so we see that the Thessalonians are actually being deceived. Paul gives us three ways in which they could have been deceived. Uh, actually, in reading this, we're actually, it appears like Paul doesn't really know uh, what's actually going on in the church there. Uh, he actually gives three possibilities for how they are being deceived because he really doesn't really know which one of these possibilities is, is true. But he calls one's a prophecy um, or uh, a spirit, which is probably to be interpreted as a, a prophecy there among uh, the Thessalonians. Uh, a word um, could be leading them astray, which is probably just a spoken word, like a message or something being spoken in the church. Uh, and then it says, or a letter, whether it's coming from us or somebody else. So he identifies three things, and we can't really get to the bottom of whether these things that are causing the misunderstanding among the Thessalonians are actually malicious or not. We don't really know whether somebody is intentionally trying to deceive the Thessalonians or whether this has been uh, part of a big misunderstanding. Uh, it's possible, uh, especially when we look at this passage in the Greek, um, that Paul is uh, leaving the door open that the Thessalonians might have actually been confused by part of his teaching, right? And so we don't really know why the Thessalonians uh, have been deceived about the second coming. Um, that ought to remind us something important, too, is that we need to actually be on guard against all forms of uh, misunderstanding and deception, right? We need to be uh, on guard against people who are actually having a false message that is intended to deceive the body of Christ uh, about theology, about who Christ is, or about his will for us uh, on this earth, we also need to be on guard equally about misunderstanding God's word, right? We need to try our best to uh, interpret God's word faithfully so all misunderstandings and misconceptions are actually uh, taken care of and the, the people of God uh, are not deceived. This, um, this is actually, uh, this deception that the Thessalonians are experiencing is actually uh, another way that their story is connected to the larger overall story of Scripture. Because you see, deception and deceit goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And so all the way back at Genesis chapter 1, we see uh, that the original deceiver, the great deceiver, deceiving humanity uh, and telling uh, them to doubt uh, the integrity of God's word. Well, when we come all the way forward in our Bibles to uh, the Thessalonians, we see that deception is still reigning uh, to some degree and occurring in the human heart, right? And so the deception uh, that is going on there in Thessalonica is nothing new right? It is part of God's overall big story. There's always deception uh, that the people of God are trying to guard against. Second character, we're going to transition now to the second character, which is the man of lawlessness. So, uh, the man of lawlessness, lawlessness comes, uh, uh, comes up several times in our chapter. Um, he is also known throughout the rest of the parts of the, of the Bible as sometimes the Antichrist, which is another um, connection that we heard about some this morning. Um, every description about this man of lawlessness in our chapter in our chapter is is could be characterized by evil. He is described in uh, two three as the man of lawlessness. Basically, what this means is that he uh, is unrestrained by any kind of authority or anybody trying to have authority over him. Okay. Uh, he's also called in 1-3, the son of destruction. I actually think this is a beautiful, um, it's not a play on words uh, so much as it is just a, a double meaning here. Uh, he is the son of destruction. What that means is that he actually, uh, his goal was to bring about the destruction and ruin of the people of God. But he is also the culmination of all the destruction that has gone on before him, right? This man of lawlessness can be characterized uh, as the epitome, the building up of all of human sin is what actually produces this man. He is the son of all the destruction that we have uh, created and made of God's creation. So uh, he's, uh, he's the one that is going to bring to the destruction, and he's also the uh, epitome, the one that is caused by all of humans, uh, humanity's uh, sin on the earth. 
His coming is in conjunction with the, with the rebellion. Look there in Second Thessalonians 2, 3, uh, it begins, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And so the man of lawlessness is actually uh, characterized in some way as, as being a part of this rebellion. Uh, we're not really sure what the nature of this rebellion is, right? We don't know if it's, uh, Paul doesn't tell us, tell us if it's a rebellion against the government at the time or whether it's a rebellion in, against God. Um, I, I kind of lean towards this as a rebellion against God, but even if that's the case, we're not told if this is a rebellion against God uh, on behalf of all of humanity or perhaps if this is a rebellion against God amongst uh, those who claim to be his followers, the church. Uh, we're just not really told enough in this passage, but whatever the case may be, this man of lawlessness is part of, of this rebellion. Uh, in two, uh, chapter 2, verses four, uh, verse 4, he is called God's adversary, right? And the fact that he is God's adversary uh, gives a, a direct connection that Paul actually makes explicit in verse 9. It gives him a direct connection to Satan, right? This man of lawlessness is God's adversary, and he is coming uh, in the power of Satan, who is known as God's uh, greatest adversary uh, in, in the Old Testament and in the rest of, rest of Scripture. Uh, the man of lawlessness is also a deceiver, right? Which should be very uh, alarming to the Thessalonians, right? Because as we learned about the Thessalonians is that they were apparently, uh, we could call them prone to being deceived, right? And so the fact that the man of lawlessness is a deceiver himself is in one sense a warning to the Thessalonians, you guys need to be on the lookout for lawlessness because you guys are prone to being uh, swept up in his influence because you're prone to being deceived uh, about the things of God's. Second thing about the man of lawlessness is that his goal is to usurp God's authority. Uh, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4, which begin, begins, uh, who, that's the man of lawlessness, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object, object of worship. And so every so-called God or object of worship would in, uh, include the, the true God, our God, uh, the one that we would... Uh, possessed to be the creator of all things, but not even God himself, but also anything that uh, somebody would actually claim to be a god, right? Uh, all the gods of the Roman pantheon, uh, all the gods of the pagan Canaanites, anything that somebody would identify as God, this man of lawlessness is uh, here to oppose, uh, oppose, uh, oppose them. Um, we also see, if we keep on reading in verse 4, that uh, he actually, uh, his number one goal is actually to dethrone the true high God, our God, uh, from his throne. So Brian prayed earlier about, uh, about or maybe it was this morning that I was thinking about this, is that you know, no matter what happens, we know that God is actually on his throne and reigning in heaven. Well, if the man of lawlessness has his way and ha uh, has his uh, goal achieved, that won't be the case anymore, right? His goal is to usur uh, usurp God's uh, reign in heaven. Uh, we, as we read, um, the way that uh, this says uh, this is that um, he seeks to take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So uh, what exactly does this mean to that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. Well, the action of sitting in the temple was a sign that you were the one that was uh, in charge of that particular uh, building. You were the God that was in charge of all that that temple represented. So the act of taking his seat uh, is just that. It's an attempt to usurp God's authority. Um, but what exactly is God's temple uh, in this passage? Well, there's uh, two interpretations of what's going on here. There's a literal interpretation and a metaphorical interpretation. And uh, in my view, this is one of those things in our Bibles that it's okay to have a little bit of a difference of opinion on. Uh, at least that's the way it is for me. It might not be for you. I, I don't know. Um, some of you might be going home tonight and writing excommunication letters about me and sending them to Brian. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if that happens, Brian, don't listen to him. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, 
two interpretations of what this can mean. The first is a literal interpretation, which means that this is an actual literal temple that's going to be somewhere on the earth at this figure, this character in our story that Paul is telling the, second Thess or the Thessalonians about, uh, that he's actually going to go to this temple and he is actually going to set himself up there uh, as, the God, as God coming uh, to rule in this temple. Uh, there's also a metaphorical uh, interpretation that understands temple in this passage to actually mean the church, right? The body of Christ. Uh, it could be either collectively uh, the body of Christ or individual bodies of Christ. Um, uh, it, could be, it, it could be either one. Um, I, actually, I prefer the metaphorical uh, interpretation in this passage. A um, couple reasons for that. Currently, there is no temple that is actually dedicated to the Judeo-Christian God on the earth, right? Uh, there, was, there have been temples in the uh, before. The last temple that was uh, existed that was dedicated to him was actually destroyed in the year 70 AD. So uh, as of right now, there's no uh, actual temple that any future figure could actually go and uh, have a seat in in order to fulfill this literally. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one couldn't be built. Um, but if that's the case, it is a little bit difficult for me to adjust with what the rest of Scripture actually says about the return of Christ. Scripture uh, for the most part, pre presents the return of Christ as being something that could occur imminently. It could occur at any moment, right? And so, but the problem uh, with the literal interpretation is that this uh, building, uh, uh, if the man of lawlessness has to come and sit in this building in order for Christ to return, then Christ can't return until this temple has actually been built. But more important to me is actually the way that Paul typically uses the word temple uh, that is underlying the Greek of this passage. The Greek word that we read in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 4 is actually the Greek word naos. Okay, that is the word for, for temple there. Paul actually uses this word, I think it's seven times uh, in five verses total. I thought it'd be helpful for us to look at some of these verses. I don't want you to go through the process of looking them up, but uh, I have them printed out here. I think it'd be helpful for us to, to read them. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple, a naos, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. A little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, not us, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Uh, one verse later in 1 Corinthians 3.17, Do you not know that you are God's temple, not us, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, not us, God will destroy him, for God's temple, not us, is holy, and you are that temple. He's talking to the Corinthians and saying, you are God's, not us. You're his temple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we read, what agreement has the temple of God, not ah, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses, we're going to read 19 through 21 just for the sake of context. Uh, these verses say, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple, a naos, uh, in the Lord. And so as we trace Paul's usage of this Greek word for temple, naos, uh, through all these passages, we see that not one time does Paul actually use this Greek word to refer to a physical structure somewhere. In Paul's mind and in his thinking, uh, it's not a physical structure that is the dwelling place of God any longer. It is actually the people of God, the church, which is where God actually makes his dwelling now. Uh, and that's us as individuals. The Holy Spirit makes his dwelling inside of us when we confess, uh, confess Christ to be our Savior. And it's actually us as a, as a corporate body, right? Christ uh, makes his dwelling among us. 
And so um, that's why I begin, that's why I tend to favor the metaphorical uh, interpretation of, of this passage. Um, and the idea is that the, this man of lawlessness, getting back to him, the idea is that he's going to attempt to usurp God's authority within God's own people, right? He's got his eye on the church of Jesus Christ uh, and to lead all the people within God's holy church astray, okay? And so what's an application we have to make for this? And this, I think this application would hold true whether you, regardless of whether you hold to my interpretation of this passage or not. But the application that we have to hold to as members of the church is that we have to hold strong to uh, biblical convictions within our churches because we have a real enemy whose goal is our allegiance to him. And his influence is already being felt in the world, right? Um, people are all the time are starting to, politicians are starting to try and pressure churches to actually um, uh, flee from biblical convictions in order to keep, their, uh, keep, their, keep themselves open, right? Uh, there's threats to our religious liberty uh, for us to uh, flee biblical convictions on things that are not popular within our society, uh, or they're going to do things like remove tax-exempt uh, status and uh, put our existence uh, on the line. Um, and many churches, even besides this, many churches have already uh, surrendered biblical convictions uh, in a lot of areas. But that's something that we as a church that seeks to be faithful to God, uh, something that we can't do. Uh, the Word of God, what it calls us to stand for as a church and what it expresses as the true morality of God is the thing that we have to stand up for. Uh, and we have to stand uh, with the Bible no matter the cost. So. Last thing about the, this man of lawlessness before we move on is that his story actually started... Um, uh, it's not the last thing that we're going to look at, but this man of God, his attempt to actually usurp God's authority has actually started long ago, not uh, by him directly, uh, but on uh, prefigurations or types of this man of lawlessness. Earlier we were at uh, Genesis 3.1 uh, in the Garden of Eden, and we saw lawlessness uh, trying to infiltrate God's dwelling place. Uh, and caused deception among God's people. In another place in the Old Testament, in uh, Leviticus 10, we see Aaron, who is the Israel's first high priest. Uh, he was given instructions about how to make sacrifices before God in the tabernacle. And in Leviticus 10, we see Aaron's sons making what is called unlawful fire uh, in the tabernacle. And that passage says that the fire comes from the from the altar and consumes Aaron's sons, right? But the main point is that there is lawlessness going on in the presence of God. And the idea is that Aaron's sons are trying to show Israel, I know this is what God says, uh, has, how he has commanded us to make our sacrifices, but let us show you the little bit more convenient way for it, right? And we have lawlessness going on in the presence of God. And so we see this uh, all throughout uh, the Old Testament. We see lawlessness trying to encroach upon the dwelling place of God. Uh, Second Thessalonians is part of a larger story. The story that we encounter in our text is actually part of a larger story of Scripture. Last thing that we're going to look at for the man of lawlessness is that he is actually restrained until the time of Christ's return. Uh, chapter 2, 6 through 7 says, And you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So um, I told you before that this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Paul's letters to interpret. And in my opinion, this is probably the most difficult thing to understand in this difficult passage we have no idea what Paul is actually, uh, in my opinion, trying to say uh, about the identity of this one restraining him. Uh, it's obvious from verse 5 that the Thessalonians had some insider knowledge. They had already been taught by Paul uh, on this subject, and Paul is simply reminding them of what he has previously taught him. But in reminding them, uh, he hasn't quite given us enough information to understand what's going on there. Uh, in my studies of this restraining influence on the man of lawlessness, 
I've seen this restrainer be identified as anything on a spectrum from God until Satan, right? Uh, anything from the Roman Empire actually restraining this man of lawlessness uh, all the way to the church's mission. As long as the uh, gospel of Christ is going forward, it's acting as a restraint on the man of lawlessness. And the interesting thing is I've heard people argue in favor of each one of these things and things in between. Uh, I've also encountered people uh, arguing that each one of those things couldn't possibly be uh, what is referred to in this passage. And so uh, we really don't have a, a lot of details um, to go with here. My, my personal interpretation, I think it, uh, the restrainers probably more led, uh, could be more identified as God. But whatever the case, uh, I think the application that we can pull from this restraining influence is that uh, the man of lawlessness, his restraint is a missional mandate for our churches, right? Because as of right now, his influence and his destruction is being restrained, uh, which provides us an opportunity uh, for Christian mission and for the gospel to go forward. Uh, the mission is actually needed because his influence is already at work, right? We read that later in his passage, that his influence has had an inbreaking into our current age. Uh, and there's actually deceit and deception uh, that is associated with him already going on. And that there's also going to be a time when he actually comes upon this earth and is actually revealed. The restraint is taken away. Uh, when that time actually arrives, it's going to be too late for mission at that point. Um, reading uh, in Mark, uh, preparing for later this month, when the man of lawlessness is actually unrestrained and allowed to come forward, that is no longer the time for mission. That is the time for fleeing because it is going to get very bad. So, um, Third character that we're going to look at in this passage is, in my opinion, the most tragic character in our whole story and in the whole story uh, of God's creation uh, and of his whole grand story in the Bible. Uh, the third character is those who are deceived. And... Uh, Chapter 2, verses 10, uh, we read, And all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. And in verse 12, we read, In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had the pleasure of unrighteousness. And so those who are deceived, we see that they, uh, they are deceived because they, don't, uh, because they are rejecting the truth. Now, what exactly is truth in this passage? Well, uh, truth in this passage isn't just general facts, right? I mean, Paul is not talking about two plus two is four, I think. Um, I have PhD, but I'm pretty sure that's right. He's not talking about two plus two truth. He's not talking about uh, historical truth. This figure did this at this day. He's not talking about the, the president of the United States on this date was or anything like that. No, the truth that Paul is actually referring to and the truth that is being rejected by those who are being deceived is actually the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth that Christ has died for our sins so that we may be forgiven our sins by the true God and that we may spend all of eternity uh, able to worship him. So uh, these people are rejecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ must remain central to everything that we do as a church, right? Because people are good at rejecting the truth, and if they reject the truth of the gospel, um, then they are the, counted among those who are being deceived, right? And so we can do a lot of good things as, as a church. We can minister to those who are in need, um, we can stand up for the truths of God's word, but if our ministry does not include the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our influence among those who are being deceived is ultimately not enough, right? Another thing about those who are deceived is that they delight in unrighteousness. And I think this is so important to understand is that their rejection of the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not based upon the unbelievability of the gospel itself, right? Those who are being deceived aren't deceived because there's something about the gospel that uh, is difficult to believe or that can't be believed or that doesn't make sense. The reason that they are rejecting the gospel truth is uh, simply because they hate the truth, okay? Uh, what they would rather do than 
rather than accepting the truth, is that they delight uh, in what displeases God more. They love, uh, they love their own sin more than the truth of the gospel. Last thing about the, this character, those who are deceived. Um, they are deceived, first of all, by the man of lawlessness and by Satan. Uh, in two chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And so we see... Uh, we see the man of lawlessness actually deceiving uh, those who were deceived. Uh, again, this is another connection that has been going on all the way since the beginning of God's creation. Uh, in Genesis 3.1, the serpent comes to the woman and says, did God really say this? And we have the deception of those who were are, who are deceived. Um, this is why... Um, this is why we can't ever really stop evaluating uh, our culture, right? Because we have the man of lawlessness who is coming in the influence of Satan, and uh, his goal is to take as many followers uh, of the one true God and deceive them. Uh, and the minute that we let our guard down, their goal is to deceive us too, right? And they will use any means necessary, right? Whether it's deceiving us by our work, by making us think that our work uh, defines us and is who we are. They'll deceive us by using our leisure and distracting us from the uh, situation that we find ourselves in in the world and distracting us from the truth of uh, God's word and the uh, missional mandate that God gives us as a, as a people. They'll distract us by our entertainment, right? And infuse our minds with all sorts of unrighteousness. They'll distract us by religion, right? Their goal is to distract us and deceive us by any means necessary. But the tragic thing about those who are received is that they are also, according to this passage, deceived by God. Let's look at uh, uh, verses 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned uh, who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this is quite a startling thing to read. And first, in fact, at first, I probably think it makes a lot of us do a double take, right? Uh, is this really what the Bible says? But the message is actually quite clear, right? And we as a church shouldn't misunderstand this message by making it more than it is, right? Okay, so there's no sense in which God is actually violating the will of those who are deceived uh, by sending them a strong delusion. It's actually working very much like Pharaoh. Uh, God worked on Pharaoh by hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Old Testament. The idea of hardening Pharaoh's heart wasn't that God made Pharaoh do something that Pharaoh didn't want to do. No, Pharaoh already wanted to reject God's command uh, from Moses and keep the people of Israel as his slaves, right? And God hardened his heart so that he would see that through to completion, right? It's the same thing for those who are deceived. It's not as if God is violating their will. Their will is not to embrace the truth of God. Their will is to actually reject him. And God, by sending them a strong delusion, actually emboldens them to see their will to, to fruition. Um, we shouldn't make uh, this say anything less than it says, however, either. Um, those who are receiving that strong delusion, they have rejected the truth of God, and they have actually become God's enemies, right? And that is something that we don't want to be, is an uh, enemy of God. Final character that we're gonna, going to look at real briefly is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ is the hero of every story in the Bible. Again, uh, going all the way back to uh, the beginning of God's word in Genesis 3.15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he, uh, you shall bruise his heel. And so we see uh, Christ showing up there at the beginning of God's story and conquering uh, the lawlessness that is going on uh, in God's place. Uh, and we see him coming all the way forward. Uh, and he is here to, uh, at the second coming, he is here to conquer the lawlessness that is going on in this world. So at his coming, he is going to judge all those who have rejected his gospel. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and the lawless none will, 
lawless one will be revealed. And then this is very interesting. He will be revealed, and then his story is actually over, isn't it? Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so Christ Jesus will kill the lawless one with nothing more than the breath of his mouth. Um, Ultimately, all those who perish in the great conflict that we read about tonight are going to perish by the might of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Last thing that we're going to learn about our Lord Jesus is that at his coming, he will gather those who embrace the truth of the gospel. Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 7, we read, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So uh, chapter 1, verse 7 presents the return of Christ as being a time of great joy. It presents Christ's second coming as a time when all those who are suffering will be vindicated, right? All suffering is going to be washed away. Uh, The book of Revelation describes it in this way. I think this is so beautiful. But when Christ returns, it actually describes him as grabbing his followers by the face and actually wiping their tears away with his hands, the tears that are shed because of their suffering. Uh, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and make all the wrong things that they are suffering for right. And if you are in the midst of suffering tonight, that's the vision that I want to leave with you. You must remain faithful to the truth uh, of Christ's second coming. No matter how you are suffering, uh, your cry needs to be, Come, Lord Jesus. So tonight we looked at the Thessalonians who were deceived. We looked at the, looked at the man of lawlessness whose goal was to usurp the authority of God. Uh, we looked at those who were sadly deceived uh, by the man of lawlessness and were swept away in his, in his rebellion. And we looked at our grand hero in all of Scripture, Christ our Lord, whose second coming sets all things right. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we um, are enamored about your plan for the world. I thank you so much uh, for your word and for how interconnected it is, Father, and how it all forms together one giant story uh, of which all that is wrong in your creation will be dealt with, Father in which your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, is revealed as the true and only hero, Father, and how at the end of all things, Father, you will be high and lifted up uh, among your people and that your name will be glorified, Father. Lord, uh, I pray that that would be our great hope uh, as we go out into the world this week, Father. Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that um, you would keep us faithful as a body uh, to the truths of your word, Father. And I pray, Father, that the phrase, come, Lord Jesus, would be on our lips. It's your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you all for coming tonight. Sorry.